0: into the word together. We're continuing uh, through our series in John. We're going to be in John chapter 12. If you have a Bible, please turn there. If you Even if you have a Bible app, please turn there. I think it's good to just be accustomed to opening your Bible, either electronically or in print form, and uh, getting just familiar with where things are at. So in John chapter 12, we're going to look today at verses 12 through 19. Very familiar passage of Scripture. A lot of times it's preached the week before easter on uh, the date known as palm sunday and uh, but this is where it falls for us this time so we're going to look at jesus's triumphant entry starting in verse 12 i'll read the next day when the large crowd had come to the festival the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that jesus was coming to jerusalem they took palm branches and went out to meet him they kept shouting hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord the king of israel Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they had heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray and we'll look at these verses together. Father, your word is living and active in its truth. And so we pray that as we look at your word today, it would prove living in our own souls and our minds and our hearts. Do your work in us through your word. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds that are open, hearts that are fertile soil ready to receive the seed of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, this this story, you know, we have four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all have some distinct differences about them. There are things that, that they highlight over the other accounts, and they, 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 they don't contradict each other in any significant way, but they do tell the story of Jesus from a different perspective and for a different purpose. Very few of the events of Jesus's life, believe it or not, occur in all four Gospels. There are many things that Jesus did that show up in more than one of the Gospels but it's, it's somewhat rare for an event that happened during Jesus' ministry to make it into all four. This is one of the events that makes it into all four Gospels. Which, of course, points to the significance of what is happening here. If you remember from last week in the first few verses of John, there was a question that people were asking in Jerusalem. People had come from all throughout the land of Israel and even outside of the land of Israel to celebrate the, the feast of Passover in Jerusalem, and they were going to be there for most of them for over a week, and this was a, a big deal in, in their religious calendar or something that was very significant to all the Jewish people, and there was a question that was going around Jerusalem. You think Jesus is going to come? Prior to this happening, uh, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, which proved to be the final straw for the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious leaders. So the religious leaders who are ruling from Jerusalem, they've had enough of Jesus. They've put a warrant out for his arrest. And they're going to put an end to this Jesus madness. And so the question that the people are asking as they go around and prepare for the, the festival and the Feast of Passover is, do you think Jesus is gonna show up? Well, they get their answer in verse 12. When the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming. Imagine the scene. So, so uh, Jerusalem was and is a small city. It's not a huge city even today. Uh, the, the old city part of the city, which remains, is, is, is fairly small. But during these times of year when the Jews would gather together for their feasts, it would, the, the population of Jerusalem would swell to many times what it normally was. So there's people from, from all over the country and they're staying in, in other people's homes. They're staying in any kind of guest houses that there might've been. They're, they're just filling up the city and there's, there's people that aren't normally there that are just all over the place and there's all of this commotion and now they've heard that Jesus is indeed coming to Jerusalem. Now the Jews have a mixed reception of Jesus and his ministry. Of course, the religious leaders as we see here We're very against what he's doing. He's pulling people away from their teaching. He's pulling people away from their leadership to his leadership. He's gathering people. People are becoming devoted to him. People are becoming loyal to him. And now that he's raised Lazarus from the dead, they have no fear whatsoever. I mean, what is there to be afraid of? If Jesus has the power to raise people from the dead, then what is there to be afraid of? And so I want to look at the mixed response of the Jews as Jesus enters into Jerusalem for this final week of his life. The first thing you'll see on your handout is the crowd. The crowd tried to define him. How are people going to respond to Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem? Well, the crowd tries to define him. It says, the next day, this is verse 12, when the large crowd had come to the festival, from the, (laughs) messed this up the first time I read it too, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches. Everybody asked the question, why palm branches? Well, I think one, they were readily available. It was something that you could get your hands on. And this had become a bit of a tradition among the Jewish people that In celebration they would wave palm branches there's historical examples of this one of the not to get too far into the history but you have to understand that the Jewish people had not really been in control of their own land uh, for the last several hundred years other than for a very brief period of time uh, about a century and a half before Jesus when there was a bit of a revolt and there was a revolt among the Jewish people, and they they sort of regained authority and control of the land, and they celebrated with palm branches. So that had become a thing. It was, it was a way that they would celebrate the significance of what was happening. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Hosanna is, is a plea. It's a it's a, it's a cry out. It means save us, rescue us. Rescue us from what? The authority and the control of the Roman Empire. Again, they are, they are the Israelites had been promised this land. This was their land, and yet they did not have control of it. Ever since the, the end of the Old Testament period, where we see the accounts of, of foreign nations coming in and taking over Israel, taking over their land and dragging the Jewish people into exile. And it was one nation after another. These nations just keep conquering each other. and But at, at, at the receiving end of that is the Israelite people, the Jewish people. They've been promised this land by God. They received it and they, they lived in control of that land under some of their kings, especially, particularly Saul and David and Solomon, and then things started to go a little bit bad from there. But now they're they're here. They're they're under this somewhat—I mean, maybe somewhat too too polite, too mild—this somewhat oppressive Roman regime. Imagine, I mean, if we. I I think with everything going on in the world, probably most of us have thought about this and what it would be like. And, you know, imagine if America was taken over by one of the other significant countries of the world. Not to say that any of these groups of people are particularly bad, but imagine if the Russians took over America and our land, and we now lived under Russian government, or the Chinese, or or, or some other country or, or government took over America, and we had to live according to how they said we had to live. Now we have to pay taxes to them, and, and we have to adopt certain customs. This is a huge problem. It is the The biggest problem, politically speaking, for the Jewish people. That they are not an independent, sovereign nation. They are not free people. And for hundreds of years, this tension has been building. For hundreds of years, the frustration of that, of living that way, of having such great promises from God that this is their land, of living under somebody else's rule... It's coming to a boiling point. And there's tension in the city. There's tension in Jerusalem. There's tension among the people. About three years ago, I got to go to Israel and, and visit Jerusalem and a lot of the other sites uh, in the land of Israel. And it just so happened that the trip that we planned, we were there. Uh, I was in Jerusalem. It was just days after Uh, president trump had moved the u.s embassy into jerusalem uh for for decades the the u.s has been promising to acknowledge that jerusalem is the capital city of israel which has huge political significance it it set off a, a political wildfire Whenever President Trump actually followed through on the promise that we had made decades ago, that president after president after president had been delaying the execution of, and we actually moved our, our embassy in Israel into Jerusalem. And this had incredible significance for the Jewish people, but it, but it also had an incredible significance for those who oppose the Jewish occupation of the land of Israel, S- particularly like every neighboring country and the Palestinians that live within Israel. It was a big, big political deal. And so there was there was tension over that. There was literally people dying daily because of that, because there was these fights that were breaking out uh, between Israel and the Palestinians, and people were dying every day while we were there because of this, and yet the Jewish people were rejoicing. Uh, I was there with another pastor, and we, we literally had somebody come up and thank us for moving the embassy, and we're like, oh yeah, bless you, you know, it was... We were really, really trying to get that done for you, you know. <laughs> but it was a big deal to them. And so there's, but it, it, it caused a lot of tension. And on top of that, we were there on, on the Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday night. And that's a big deal in Israel. Everything kind of comes to a halt, sund, sundown on Friday night. And every, and throughout Israel, they observe the Sabbath. Everybody's off work, and it's a big deal. They, they, they celebrate, and they do things together as a family. Um, in addition to Friday night being the beginning of the Sabbath, it was the beginning of the Feast of Pentecost, and so it wasn't just any Sabbath. It was a special Sabbath, and then on top of that, it was the beginning of Ramadan for all the Muslims that live in that area. I mean... There was a lot coming together. And as we walked around Jerusalem, so in Jerusalem, Israel, although Israel is today a sovereign nation and technically was given control of of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem where the temple used to be, where there's now a Muslim um, shrine and a Muslim mosque. Uh, up on the Temple Mount, it's the, most, it's the most sacred and holy place in Jewish history. And it's Muslim-controlled because Israel has allowed Jordan, the neighboring country, to kind of take control of that and oversee peace for the sake of peace. And um, But there's all of this tension surrounding the Temple Mount daily. And then you add to it all of these things that are happening. The significance of the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, the significance of Ramadan, the holiest month of the year for the Muslims. Uh, the U.S. kind of stirring the pot a little bit by moving the embassy. As you walked around Jerusalem, you felt tension. And I had never seen so many police officers in my life. You couldn't take five steps without running into a police officer. Because of all of this, I mean, Israel's not dumb. They know how to do security, and they do security very well, there are significant act of violence around the Temple Mount, mainly because the overwhelming presence of police there. And he, there are often uh, attacks on Jewish people from Muslim people there, but it usually ends very quickly because of the police presence that's there. But as I, as I experienced that, as I experienced the tension of all of these political things happening and all of these religious things happening, I think about what was going on 2,000 years before this. So here's Israel, desperate for a savior, desperate for a Messiah, desperate to see God fulfill his promises. For, For hundreds of years, the prophets had been prophesying that God was going to send them a new king, a conquering king, one who would disperse their enemies, one who would give them the land back, one who would bring about the fulfillment of all of God's promises to them. And now for the past couple years, there's been this guy, Jesus, who began as, as really a nobody from Nazareth. Everybody thought, oh, what good, what good thing could ever come from Nazareth, right? Remember when they said that? But he's been healing people. He's been teaching with authority, and now, just 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 prior to this day, he actually, there's stories that this guy actually raised somebody from the dead, and not just somebody, but Lazarus, uh, somebody that they knew. They knew Lazarus. They knew his sisters, and, and they had... They had no reason to think they would have made this up. And so there's this commotion. And so before Jesus shows up, the question is, do you think Jesus is coming this week? you think he'll show up? The Pharisees, I heard if the Pharisees find him, they're going to kill him. you think he'll come? And people are saying, no, nah, no, nah, there's no way he's going to come. And other people were probably saying, yeah, I'll bet he's coming. I'll bet this is it. And so when they hear that he's coming, the crowd goes out to him. With palm branches in hand, and they keep shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Can you you feel the climate that Jesus is walking into? Imagine those expectations. Imagine all of that hype, people shoulder to shoulder, screaming out, Waving palm branches. We know from the other gospel accounts that they were throwing palm branches on the road in front of him. Some of them were actually taking off their cloaks and they were laying their cloaks on the ground as a sign of of, you are our king. You are our king and we submit to you. What is Jesus gonna do with this? How's Jesus gonna respond to this? For the last couple years, Anytime his disciples would start to say things that indicated they were thinking he might be the Messiah, he would be like, shh, 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 my time has not yet come. Well, has his time come yet? How will he respond? So we see in verse 14, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So here's what's happening here. The crowd is shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is, the, is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. This is, this is at least a strong allusion to, but probably a direct quotation of Psalm 18, which is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that talks about the Messiah, the Savior, the rescuer who is going to come. And so when When Jewish people start to quote Old Testament, for them, it's just their scripture. When they start to quote scripture, they're they're saying, obviously, this is him. What was written in, in Psalm 118 applies to this guy. And is Jesus going to receive that? Somewhat. But there's a caveat. There's a distinction that Jesus wants to make. And so he quotes another scripture. He quotes Zechariah nine nine, which says, "Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming." So he accepts he accepts that role, but sitting on a donkey's colt. You see, kings kings rode around on conquering war horses. Kings rode around in prestige and glory. Jesus is letting them know what kind of king he's going to be. He's a humble king. He's coming as king, but he's not necessarily coming to conquer their political enemies. He's correcting them gently. He's correcting them. He's pointing them to something that is extremely mysterious to them at this point. You see, they wanted a political king They wanted somebody who was going to come in and overthrow Roman rule in Jerusalem and beyond. They wanted someone to deliver them from their political enemies. Jesus makes it clear that he's not coming to conquer, because who conquers on a donkey? He's coming to save. He's coming humbly. He's coming to surrender himself. Not to wage war. That will become the most important part of Jesus' earthly ministry. And nobody knows it right now. This will be the most... Jesus has a decision to make at this point. Now, it's a decision he's already made. He, he, He decisively lived that he was going to accomplish the Father's will, not his own, right? So it's a decision that he's already made, but but he could have gathered the people. They've done this before historically. There have been been political leaders that have come in and, and led a revolt and they've had some success with that in the past. Jesus could have done that. We know that he has men right beside him who are ready to die. Peter will prove this in the Garden of Gethsemane. When they come to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? He takes out his sword. He's ready to fight. He's re- and and he's, he's ready to die. He's outnumbered in that moment. Jesus could have capitalized on that. What's he tell Peter to do? He says, put your sword away. And in a sense, that's what he's telling all of the Jewish people as he rides in on a donkey. Your king is here, put your swords away. Something that would make no sense to them whatsoever. So the crowd tries to define him. They try to, they try to force him. I, and I think largely, probably out, well, I don't, I'm not even gonna try to judge their motives. Good or bad, this is what they wanted him to be. And you can understand why this is what they had been expecting. This is what they were taught was going to come. The crowd tried to define him. The next thing on the hand, the disciples didn't understand him. The disciples didn't understand him. This becomes the most perplexing and confusing week of this small group of men's lives without a doubt whatever they had gone to pre, whatever they had gone through previously leading up to this what is going to happen in the next few days is just going to leave them completely lost they don't understand what Jesus is doing they just like all of the other Jewish people thought that he was coming to lead this political revolution they that was their understanding of what the Messiah would do in in a sense that that does partially come to pass, in a sense that that is still to happen for them, but Jesus came to do something greater than to overthrow the Roman Empire. He came to conquer their two real enemies, sin and death. But they don't understand it. It says in verse sixteen, his disciples did not understand these things at first. We see and we see evidence of this often amongst it well not often but enough that that this was an ongoing thing amongst the disciples that Jesus would do something or he would perform some sort of miracle and they were just kind of left like what was that about what do we do with that how do we understand that and sometimes Jesus would explain himself and other times he wouldn't he would just leave them kind of thinking about it but his disciples did not understand these things at first however when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now, Jesus' glorification here uh, is his, his death, burial, resurrection, and eventually ascension. And we see that it, it, it takes, there's a, period of, there's a period of coming into this understanding that the disciples go through. It's not like when Jesus is on the cross, all of a sudden they go... That's what, was, that's what this was all about. He's here to die for our sins. He's here to, to fulfill the Old Testament law. He's here to reconcile us permanently in our relationship with God. It's not as if they understood that when they saw him on the cross. Because after Jesus' death, they were completely dismayed and completely confused, completely lost. And Jesus, over the course of 40, years, or 40 days after his resurrection, it begins to appear to them and, and reveal to him, them more and more about his plan of salvation. And then eventually, at his ascension, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, now everything starts to make sense. That's why it says his disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered. And why did they remember? Well, Jesus told them they would. He tells them, in fact, in in the next few days, he says that after he leaves, the Holy Spirit is gonna come and dwell within them and he, the Holy Spirit, will bring to remembrance what he has taught them. So it says when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. I already mentioned Peter in the garden but you can go back even to to one of peter's interactions before the garden of gethsemane in the garden when i said in the garden that was when he tried to stop them from arresting jesus but even before that peter had objected to the idea that jesus would die he re, he rejected that idea long before this week when jesus is saying well who do you say that i am and and he says well you're the messiah and Jesus says, that's great that you believe that, um, but I'm also here to die. And Peter says, no way. And, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So there's a huge misunderstanding that the disciples have about what Jesus is going to do. And then at the la- you remember at the last supper, when Jesus is again talking about his death and the disciples are saying, no way, we'll never let that happen. We'll die before we let that happen. And Jesus says, you don't really know what you're talking about. And then when Jesus goes to wash Peter's feet, Peter says, no way, you're not washing my feet. I w- I'm not going to let that happen. And Jesus says, well, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you have nothing to do with me. And Peter says, well, then not just my feet, but my whole body. So there's, there's this misunderstanding of what Jesus is doing. That's incredible to think about, isn't it? I think most of us probably think of the disciples. They were the guys who were in on this. They were the guys who knew what was going on, but... And they did. A lot of things they understood, I think. But they did not understand that Jesus came to die. And that—that that is all of Israel at the time. Nobody seems to understand this. And so they try to stop it. They try to keep it from happening. Imagine had they been given the ability to succeed and stopping, or imagine if Jesus changed his mind and said, you know what, all these people seem to like me. Why don't we just go ahead and set up an earthly kingdom instead of an eternal kingdom? We would have lost the opportunity for salvation. I mean, none of us would would care even the slightest bit about what happened to Israel politically 2,000 years ago. But Jesus came for something more. The Pharisees tried to stop him. The next thing you see on the handout. The Pharisees tried to stop him. The crowd tried to define him. The disciples didn't understand him. The Pharisees tried to stop him. The greatest opposition to to, to Jesus doesn't come from the disciples doesn't come from the crowd it comes from the religious leaders specifically mentioned in John's account here are the Pharisees it says in verse 17 meanwhile the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify so when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead there were a, a good number of Jews there because they were in the middle of a funeral and a funeral meant hanging out and mourning together. It wasn't just like a one-hour event like we have now. They spent days mourning together and comforting and consoling each other. And because this was just outside of Jerusalem, many of the people that were gathered at that funeral would have been people who lived within, lived inside of Jerusalem and, and were there for the festival now, and many of them would have been... Uh, Those who live not far from Jerusalem are there from the festival now. So there's all these amongst this huge crowd in Jerusalem are people who actually saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And so as people are are whispering and the rumors are spreading, there are people who are like, no, I was there. I saw it happen. Lazarus was dead. They, they, They opened up that grave and it stunk. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. So those folks, they continued to testify against the wishes of the Jewish leaders, against um, what would have been legally correct at that time. They were testifying to, to what Jesus had done. Verse 18, this is also why the crowd met him, because they had heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. The world has gone after him. How to handle Jesus has been the topic of discussion for the Pharisees. Really, it's been the topic of discussion as far as we know for the past few months. But for the past couple of years, everybody's saying, well, what do we do? I mean, the Pharisees had an important position. They were leaders amongst the Jews. And as leaders amongst the Jews, they were responsible for the people and for protecting the people. Though it seems as though more often than not, they they took advantage of the people, which seems to be what happens with political and uh, political leaders. But they were responsible for what's going on in a sense, and they had they had tried different approaches. In fact, they had even tried to arrest him once before, but he got away and. There was people that said, what do we do? Do we just get rid of this guy? Do we kill him? And there were people who objected to that idea. No, don't kill him. If he's from, if he's from God, It'll it, then it needs to happen. And if he's not from God, it'll go away. And so there was people that sort of took the passive approach. And now they're blaming each other. You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Imagine the... The instability they must have felt. Here, all of their people, the Jewish people, are gathering together to celebrate uh, the the Feast of of Pentecost. But in the midst of that, they can feel the power slipping from their hands. They can feel the people shifting a a different direction. The people are stirred up, They're, they're going out to Jesus. Jesus is disrupting their order. He must be stopped. It's to the point now where they've come to the conclusion that whatever it takes, whatever it means for everything else that we're dealing with right now, whatever whatever the cost, Jesus must be stopped or this whole thing is going to come apart. But Jesus could not be stopped. The last thing on your handout, but Jesus could not be stopped. He is the unstoppable king. The crowd could not define him. He is self-defining. He is who he is. He cannot be changed. He cannot be swayed. He cannot be convinced into being something else. He defines who he is. And he is who he is. The disciples don't understand him. He doesn't need them to. He actually uses their misunderstanding to, to accomplish his will. To get to where he wants to be. And the Jews certainly cannot stop him. There is no power on the earth. No power beyond the earth, neither physical or spiritual, that could ever stop the unstoppable king, King Jesus. That's who he is. That's who we follow. That's who we worship. Luke 9, 51, and one of the other accounts of Jesus' life it says in verse 51 of Luke 9, when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up. In other words, as he gets to the point where it's time to go to Jerusalem, to suffer and to die, to be crucified for the sins of the world, so that people might be reconciled to God, so that our sins might be forgiven through his sacrifice, when, and that he may not stay dead, but he would rise from the grave and 40 days later ascend into glory. When the days were coming, those days... For him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. A lot of translations say he set his face toward Jerusalem. The the, the original language here is meant to convey a firm, unshakable resolve to go to Jerusalem. He would not be stopped. He would not be redefined. He would not be discouraged from doing what God placed him here to do to die for your sins, to make a way for man to come to God in peace. Because Jesus refused to give in to the crowd, and because he would not let the suffering ahead of him deter him. You and I can be saved and gain eternal life in him. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it good news that Jesus wouldn't be stopped? Isn't it good news that man cannot define who Jesus is? That he, he has, he has revealed himself and that he has made his will known and that nothing that you or I believe or want to believe, or can say about that, changes any of it. He is who he is, and he came to do what he came to do. And his will was accomplished. And as a result, we can come to him for salvation. This is such good news. This is such great news. And it's so unthinkable that Jesus would lay down his life. I mean, think about it. The, the, many of those people who, who waved the palm branches, who, said, who screamed out, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just a few days later would be a part of the crowd that after Jesus' arrest and as they were going through all the political motions of carrying out this execution and, and they, they brought out um, an insurrectionist. They brought out a, a career criminal, somebody who, had, who was arrested and, and probably deserved to die. And they stood him next to Jesus and they said, which one do you want us to release to you? And they screamed out, give us Barabbas. What should we do with Jesus? Crucify him. But he couldn't be stopped. He is who he says he is. And he did what he said he was going to do he laid down his life he laid down his life for you that you could be forgiven he is the unstoppable king